We are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's in the New Testament. New Testament begins about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And you see Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible, then one of the blue provided Bibles near you, you can grab that. And this text that we're in today is going to be on page 954. 954. As I, as I typically like to say, if you're unfamiliar with looking at a Bible, the, the large number there, that's going to be the chapter. And then the small numbers next to the words, those are verses. So as I reference those verses as we look through this passage, um, that's what you're going to be looking for, is those small numbers next to the words. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's a gift to be able to gather around it each week. It's a gift to be able to look at it and examine it. Lord, we pray. We pray that you would shape us by it. Lord, you say your word is sufficient in all ways. Lord, help us to trust that. Lord, we pray for those churches, especially in southwest Florida, who are not able to gather this morning because they don't have a place to gather. We pray for those who lost homes, for those who lost loved ones, for those who lost churches, or at least gathering spaces for those churches. And God, we pray that your people would come together, that we would find ways to aid our brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray for the, the southwest Florida area as Hurricane Ian has just absolutely devastated it. God, please have the rebuilding process go smoothly. Lord, we pray for those, especially in Fort Myers and Puta Gorda and Tampa, as they were hit particularly hard. God, please bring relief. Lord, we are grateful for what you're doing here, and Lord, we're grateful for the women's Bible study that just recently started, and God, we pray for your blessing on that. Lord, we pray for our families as families try to figure out how to uh, walk together with Christ. Lord, give them wisdom. 
as they try to disciple their children, as they try to disciple one another, as they try to exercise family worship. Lord, give them wisdom. Allow them to see fruit from that. Bless their efforts. Lord, we pray for this city that you would allow faithful pastors to move to this area. Lord, we pray that there would be faithful churches that are grounded on your word. Lord, we pray that those churches would raise up faithful men to be pastors. Help us to raise up faithful men to be pastors, even if that means they need to leave here. Lord, we pray that we would train them and that the church universal would be blessed by them. Lord, we pray also that you would help us to raise up missionaries. You tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Lord, help us here be faithful laborers, and Lord, help us to be willing and ready to raise up and send missionaries to be faithful laborers throughout the world. Help me speak clearly as we look at this text. Lord, I believe it's pretty straightforward. Help me not say more than what I should say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So on August 16th, 1997, a woman by the name of Judith Scheindlin shifted her career from a Manhattan family court judge to a slightly different path. Many of us probably know her, but not as Judith Scheindlin, but affectionately as Judge Judy. She was initially a family court judge, and she shifted her career into Hollywood, where she would handle small claims, civil lawsuits, typically things between former lovers or disputing neighbors or friend relations or family relations. And a lot of the cases that she would handle were things pretty small, like broken off engagements or personal loans that were not repaid, contract breaches, personal injuries from either an individual or maybe that person's pet. The show, Judge Judy, was the most successful reality court television series ever in the history of these kinds of shows. It lasted 25 seasons, just recently stopped, and now they're running reruns. But it's wildly successful. And part of the reason it's wildly successful is because we, as a people, like, we're entertained by watching justice be played out in real time. We like seeing that. And it's no different than the people of Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago. We enjoy watching justice take place now. They enjoyed it then. It was one of their primary means of entertainment. They would hold these, these courts in the middle of the city and people would come. There'd be thousands of people who would come and watch these cases be handled. One of the, one of the interesting things was that Corinth was a, a province under Roman rule. And Romans allowed uh, religious communities to continue to operate that they, in ways that they would like to operate. It's kind of one of the ways that they tried to keep people happy so that they would stay under Roman rule. And they would allow the, the Jewish community to hold their own courts. And be, when Christianity popped up, they just viewed Christianity as another form of Judaism. And so they would continue to allow Christians to handle their own issues. And as we read this passage... We see that the Christians forsook going to themselves and began to go to the secular courts. But there's really no reason to do that. Rome gave them the permission and the ability to handle their own issues, and yet they would still go to the secular courts, and the, court, the pagan courts, as the text would say, because they weren't getting the result that they wanted here, and so they wanted to go somewhere else. 
Now, today, as we look at this text, there are a few texts that are this straightforward and this practical. It's, we, we deal with lawsuits even today. And so the question arises, well, how do I deal with a lawsuit with another Christian? And that's exactly what Paul is getting at. And the main point that he's getting at is that Christians are equipped to solve their disputes differently than the world. Christians are equipped to solve their disputes differently than the world. And so we've talked about the background to Paul's letter. He's in Ephesus and he's writing to the church in Corinth. This is a metropolitan area, a very cosmopolitan area, and so it's really all kinds of different cultures coming together, and there's all kinds of wild practices that are being brought into the church. And Paul is addressing some of the issues here. He's written to them before, and they replied. And Paul also got a report from Chloe's people, and so he's addressing the report that he first received from Chloe's people, and then later he'll address their questions. And as we've said, there's at least 10 issues that Paul addresses in this letter of 1 Corinthians. This, the one that we're looking at, is issue number three. The first one was unbiblical divisions within the church. They were dividing over their favorite speaker, or they were dividing over their preferences that were not consistent with what Christians should be uniting around. So they were, they were unbiblical divisions. The second one was that they were tolerating unrepentant sin, and it was severe sexual sin. And so Paul, in, in chapter 5, said, hey, this individual that you guys are tolerating, it, it's, it's shameful. You need to remove this person. And if you read 1 Corinthians 5, you should see later on, you see them remove that person. And in 2 Corinthians 2, you'll see them bring that person back in. The, the process of church discipline worked. We praise God for that. But those were the first two issues that we saw in this book. Now, the third one is that the Christians in Corinth were taking each other to court. They were acting like the pagans around them, like the non-believers around them, and taking each other into the city square and handling their internal issues publicly for everyone's entertainment. Now, the theme of 1 Corinthians goes contrary to that. It goes contrary to each of the issues that we are looking at. But the theme for this entire book is that we, as a people, are to be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you look at your bulletin, you'll see that we've broken this text up into two, passage, or two sections. The first one is verses 1 through 8, where we see in Christ we are competent to judge. In Christ we are competent to judge. And the second passage, verses 9 through 11, is in Christ we are righteous. And so let's look at that first one. Looking at verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So as we alluded to, there's a lot of drama going on in the city of Corinth. Christians of Corinth were filing lawsuits against one another. And if you, if you were anything like me when you were a kid, maybe, maybe today, if you're an adult and you resonate with this, you don't need to say so. But when someone would say something to you that you didn't like and they wanted you to change your behavior, your response may have been, uh, if you don't like it, sue me. Well, that's what was happening here. They're saying, sue me. And they said, oh, okay, as you wish, let's go. Let's go to the, let's go to the square. And so they were asking non-Christians to play referee, to play arbitrator of their internal Christian dispute. They were looking to the unrighteous to settle their disputes. Now, when you see unrighteous in that first verse, 
That just means non-Christians. The unrighteous that they are going to, and here, here's what Paul's trying to get at, the unrighteous that they are going to are not a suitable source for a righteous judgment. They're, it's got these people who are cleansed by the blood of Christ, who are seen by God as righteous, and they have an internal dispute, and then they go to the non-righteous, the unrighteous, the non-believers, to say, hey, give us a righteous verdict here. They're just not a suitable source. And so their understanding, these non-believers, their understanding of justice is flawed. We see that even today in the various ways that our society likes to define justice with various critical theories. This is, it's a flawed understanding of what justice is. And it's the same thing then. Christians try to go to non-believers, those who are not being submissive to the word of God and asking them for a righteous judgment. They're going to get a flawed verdict. And so Paul makes this interesting argument. He says, hey, it's, it's to your shame that you're doing that. But then he tries to make his point by asking some rhetorical questions. You see this starting in verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know, verse 3, that we are to judge angels? He makes these two, these two points. Guys, you're bringing your, your issues to non-believers. You guys are the ones who are going to judge the world. You guys are going to judge angels. And we get this from Psalm 140. Starting in verse 5, we read that the, let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for the joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Here's why. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings in chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. So what Paul's getting at is that Christians, you will participate with Christ in the final day of judgment. And he says, look, if the Lord is pleased to have us participate with him on the final day of judgment, then surely we can handle our trivial cases. We don't have to take them to Judge Judy. Surely we can handle this internally. We're more than equipped to do so. We have the word of God, we have his spirit, and we have his people. We're more than equipped. It'd be like telling a brain surgeon, hey, you could, you're about to cut into that guy's brain, but you're not qualified to, to put on a Band-Aid. Or like telling a mechanic, hey, you're, you're about to totally take out the engine in my vehicle, but I don't want you to put any air in my tires. Like, I just don't think you're qualified to do that. As Christians, we have the Word of God, we have the Spirit of God, and we have the people of God. We are more than equipped to handle some of the internal cases uh, that may arise with us. We're more than equipped to make right judgments. So the question that may pop up is, well, Rob, I, th I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. I don't, I don't know all, all of Scripture, but I, I certainly remember Matthew 7, 1, that where Christ says, judge not, lest you be judged. Well, Kevin DeYoung points out, he says, Matthew 7, 1 is arguably one of the most abused verses and one of the most well-known in all of Scripture. And so we need Matthew 7, 1. It's part of Scripture, but we also need to understand it in context. And if you read it in context, what we see is that Jesus is getting at, don't make hypocritical judgments. Each time, you see that in Matthew 7, you see it in Luke 6, the parallel passage, where Jesus is telling this parable, and Jesus is teaching this teaching, he says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. So he's making the point, he says, if you have a, if you have a log in your own eye, a massive piece of wood, 
and your brother has a very small speck of wood in his eye, each of you have wood in your eye. Like, take care of yours, and then you can talk to him. The same standard by which you judge others, you're going to be judged by. So he's saying, don't make hypocritical judgments. But rather, in John 7, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Christians are called to judge, but we're called to make right judgments. It's easy to think that, hey, we're just not supposed to judge, so therefore we're just going to turn our brains off, and we're not going to make any kind of judgment toward anything. That's not what Christ is getting at. To say, don't make hypocritical judgments. Judge according to the word of God. But also, don't judge by mere outward appearances. Judge by, make, make right judgments. And so, Paul goes on. See in verse 4. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul's essentially asking them, why are you airing your dirty laundry out to the rest of the world? This is a, a family matter. Why are you airing it out for everyone else to see? He says in verse 5 that it's shameful. I say this to your shame. He says, really? There's not one person among you, not one person in the Corinthian church who can handle the trivial cases that you guys have? There's no one wise among you? He says, but brother goes to law against brother. And that before unbelievers. It's one thing to go to court. It's another thing to take your family to court. There's a shameful thing in that. And Christians, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. We're children of God. The rest of the world is not children of God. They're, yes, they're created by God. But we read in John 1.12 that all who did receive him, all who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are considered a child of God. If you're in the room and you are not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're considering it, maybe you're curious, but just today you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You are created by God, but you would not be considered a child of God. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians saying, you are children of God. You're family. It's shameful to take family to court. So certainly there, there must be somebody wise among you to be able to resolve this dispute. And so by doing this, by taking these internal disputes into the public square, it dishonors at least four people, four things here. The first one is Christ. By doing this, it dishonors Christ. Because it, Paul said earlier in this book that we have the mind of Christ. If we are united to him, we have the mind of Christ, which helps us understand his word. And so it's saying, hey, the mind of Christ that you guys have seems insufficient to be able to handle this trivial case. Yeah, it's sufficient to judge angels, and it's sufficient to judge the world at the end, end time, but the mind of Christ must not be sufficient for judging these trivial cases between brothers. It also dishonors the gospel. I mean, think about it. Think about what the gospel is. It's the message of reconciliation. And so for people to, who claim to be followers of Christ say, yes, we are living the message of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God, but we can't quite be reconciled to each other. The gospel is sufficient to reconcile us to God, but not quite sufficient to reconcile us to one another. It's a dishonor to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says this, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry of reconciliation 
first and primarily, is between us and God, but it's also between us and one another. We need to be able to resolve our disputes. So it dishonors Christ, it dishonors the gospel, and also dishonors the spirit. Again, it's indicating that, yes, you are God's people, you have the word of God, you have the mind of Christ, you have the spirit of God, and yet that's still not sufficient for solving these trivial cases. It's a dishonor to the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. It's a dishonor of the work of the Spirit in the, in the life of the church. So Christ, the gospel, the Spirit, and lastly, it's, it dishonors the Father. Because at the end of the day, children reflect their parents. And if we as the children of God are unable to resolve our conflicts, are unable to get along with one another, it's a dishonor to our Father. Finley's in preschool right now. Finley's my four-year-old daughter. She's in preschool right now. And if the teacher were to come up to me and say, hey, your child is a train wreck in class. She is disruptive. She is slapping people. She's biting people. Whatever it is, your daughter is crazy. That, that would be a bad reflection upon me. And I would, I would not be thrilled about that report from her teacher. Brothers and sisters, the way we interact with each other is a reflection of our father. Paul is making this point. He says, essentially, it would be better for you who are equipped with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and are surrounded by the people of God, it'd be better for one faithful believer who is submitting to the Spirit and submitting to the Word, it'd be better for that one believer to handle your case than the Supreme Court justice. It's better for a believer to handle these trivial cases within the church, between brother and brother, then bring in a Supreme Court justice. John MacArthur elaborates this a little bit in a helpful way. He says, the most legally untrained believers who know the Word of God and are obedient to the Spirit are far more competent to settle disagreements between believers than the most experienced unbeliever who is void of God's truth and Spirit. We're equipped with the Word of God, with the people of God, with the Spirit of God. So therefore, we can handle these disputes. Paul goes another step further, just to make his point even more. Verse 7, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So why, why is this already a defeat for them? Well, I think, I think the text gives us at least two reasons. One is that it, it's a lack of wisdom. For us to, to go to secular courts implies that there's no one wise enough among us. Paul says that in verse 5. We've elaborated that. But at least it's a lack of wisdom. So it shows that we're, it's a defeat for us because clearly we just don't have the wisdom to be able to handle this. But second, it also shows a selfish lack of humility. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, these people were arrogantly seeking their own self-interest. And so they were willing to defame the name of Christ, to defame the Spirit, to defame the Gospel, to defame the Father in order to gain what they want to gain. They were selfishly pursuing these things outside of the church because they cared more about themselves than their brother or sister. And when, you, when you, two individuals or two entities go to court, it's always the names that you see for the case. So the names reflect the case. So for instance, Roe v. Wade is a popular one, or Dobbs v. Jackson, or Brown v. Board of Education. 
the list goes on, but it reflects the name. And as Christians, here's the problem. As Christians, we bear the name of Christ. And so to take one another to court, it's Christ be Christ. So already Christ loses. It's a defeat for us already if there are lawsuits. And so Paul says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He says, it would be better to be wronged and defrauded than to take your brother, to take another Christian to court. Now, the question pops up naturally. So should we never take another Christian to court? Now, I'm not quite saying that. However, even though there are severe cases that may warrant it, even, even then we can show mercy, we can show forgiveness, we can show charity. But the main point is that the court of the church should be the primary recourse between believers rather than the secular courts. There's also a, another clarification, is that Paul calls these cases trivial cases. And that's important for this. Trivial, if you, if you look at that word, means very small or insignificant. The New American Standard and the King James use the word smallest, you know, the smallest cases. And so when Paul, he, he even uses, uses this word trivial, he uses it um, a couple chapters before in chapter four. He says, but with me it is a very small thing, or it's a trivial thing, that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And so what was happening with the Corinthians, it wasn't just that there were massive cases going on, it's that there, there were trivial cases. These are things that we should be able to handle internally. Now, if there was a more severe case, God has given us the means appointed for that. So those internal ones are to be handled within the church. These would be, if it, this isn't a perfect parallel, but if it's helpful to think of it this way, then use it as far as it's faithful. It'd be e easier to think of this maybe as civil cases. We have civil law and criminal law. Okay, civil between individuals, which if we're honest, most of the disputes between brothers and sisters in the church are gonna fall into that category. However, the more significant cases, maybe the criminal cases, the Lord has given us means for that as well. He's given us the governing authorities. If you look at Romans 13, verses 3 and 4, it says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he, this is all those in authority, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God has ordained means for those really severe cases, for those criminal cases, if you will, for those to be handled. And he's put rulers and authorities in, even in government, to be able to handle that. Those who are in authority in government are God's servant to carry out pure justice, to carry out righteousness, to judge rightly. They don't always do that. But those are the means God has provided. And maybe you're in the room and you're unsure of a particular case that you may have in your head. Where does that fall? Where's the line? That's what your pastors are for. Please talk, talk to myself, talk to Ben, talk to other leaders in the church. Bring in another trusted brother or sister to have a conversation with you about that. Don't be hasty in making a decision as to what you are going to do. The Lord calls his people even when we're wronged, to endure suffering with patience. It says in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Romans 12, do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. Proverbs 21, everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. If you're unsure, don't make a hasty decision. Bring other trusted brothers and sisters who are submitting to the scriptures, who are filled with the Spirit of God, to be able to help you think through some of these things. Seek justice, but don't short-circuit the patient endurance that God calls us to. One commentary in talking about this says, says this, is Paul's expectation fair or reasonable? Which I think for honest, a lot of us would ask. Is Paul's expectation fair or reasonable? The writer goes on, he says, it is no more fair and reasonable than the divine grace which has eclipsed justice in Christ, giving up of his person and his rights on the cross, indicating in turn God's surrender of his right to pronounce a negative verdict on humankind without, trans- without transcending justice is costly, generous mercy. So is this, is this fair or reasonable for Paul to tell us to the Corinthians? The, the commentator says, it's no more fair or reasonable than what God did in giving up his rights to provide us a way to be restored back to him. He had every right to declare a guilty verdict on us, and yet he didn't, through Christ. And so rather than being wronged or defrauded, Paul, Paul points out that they were wronging and defrauding, that they were doing the wrong and defrauding themselves. He says, wouldn't it be better to be wrong and defrauded? Wouldn't it be better to suffer wrong? Rather than doing that, he says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So rather than suffering the wrong and defrauding that I'm encouraging you to do, you're actually committing the wrong and defrauding by taking your brother to court. So here's the thing. This shared a lot with you there. Here's the, the condensed in a nutshell point that Paul's getting at with these first eight verses. It's shameful for Christians to take their internal disputes before the unrighteous, before those who are not following Christ. They're not a sufficient source for a righteous judgment. Christians will have disputes. We don't claim to be perfect. We continue, as we read in our statement of faith, on sanctification, it's progressive work. However, the way we handle those situations that come up when we sin against one another is different than the rest of the world. And so, the heart of what Paul is getting at is don't take our disputes and air them before non-believers. And that might have to do with courts, legal matters, but if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking rightly here, I would imagine most of us in here aren't thinking about whether or not we should sue the person three rows away from you. It's probably not the case. However, Paul's saying don't take the internal matters and put them before non-believers. And so maybe it's not a legal case that you have, but maybe you're thinking about posting something on social media. Maybe you're thinking about having a conversation with a non-believer about some of the issues that you're having with some of your believers, some of the believer friends that you may have, those at your church. I would encourage you, rather than taking those things before the unrighteous, before those who are not submitting to Christ, have a conversation with the individual in question. Don't be hasty. If you're guilty of some of those things, just encourage you to be reminded of the gospel. Confess that. Go to that individual. Stop talking with non-believers about these things. Follow the Matthew 18 process. The Lord's given us a means to handle situations in the church. We talked about it a little bit last week with church discipline. But Matthew 18, if you want to read it, verses 15 through 20, that's going to be the process internally. So go to that person one-on-one. God has equipped his, his people 
with his word, with his spirit, and with one another. And together we can make righteous judgments. Let's do that. Because in Christ we are competent to judge. But this is ultimately because in Christ we are righteous. And that's, the, that's the second point. So look with me in this passage. In verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So we said earlier the unrighteous are non-Christians. Still identified with their sin. The unrighteous who judge their cases will not reign in the new kingdom with the church in Corinth. And he says this, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul had to tell God's people, don't be deceived. Because it's easy to be deceived into thinking that those who refuse to submit their need to Christ now will be able to later on. They will, but it will be forced, and they will not be citizens in the kingdom with him. That just makes logical sense, right? If, you're, if someone doesn't want to submit to bow their knee to the king today, then they're not going to want to in eternity. If someone refuses to submit to King Jesus now, they're not going to want to later on. And so rather than submitting to Christ, these individuals who they're taking their issues to, their ultimate king, their ultimate master, is that list of sins that Paul laid out. They're identified by their sins, their sexual sin, their idolatry, their adultery, their homosexual behavior, stealing, greed, alcohol abuse, slandering or reviling others, taking advantage or swindling others. We must not take our internal issues to those who are pursuing what the Lord calls sin. We take them to those who are submitting to the king for a righteous judgment. So how can you tell? How can you tell if somebody falls into that list or if they're a Christian? Well, at least two things. Those who are under that list that Paul lays out in verses 9 and 10, they don't fight sin. There's an unrestrained pursuit of that sin. Whatever it is in that category, or that category is not exhaustive. There's no fight of sin. And then secondly, there's no remorse. So when they do fall into those things, they don't feel any guilt. They don't desire to be made right with God. They continue to pursue after those things. And so if they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, Paul's making this point. If they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, he says, don't be deceived. They won't. Because if they won't, then we shouldn't take our problems to them for righteous judgments. No nation would be okay with that, right? If we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And those who they were taking their issues to are not citizens of that kingdom. No nation would be okay with another nation saying, hey, I think you got some of those verdicts wrong. We're going to go ahead and judge your people for you. No nation would be okay with that. If Russia said they wanted to judge our people, that's just not going to fly, right? You could put any two countries there. No country is going to be okay with another country saying, we will execute the judgments on your people. And so Paul is saying, these people are not citizens of the kingdom. So don't ask them to make judgments upon citizens of the kingdom. But he, he points this out in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. He says, don't forget who you were. Don't forget that you too used to be committed to those things that he lists. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. 
you were justified. You were washed. Your sins are removed. Your sins were taken away. They were washed clean. This is why we baptized post-conversion. Because we say we want to give the sign of that sin being washed away to the person whose sin has been washed away. It says you were also sanctified. Now we talked about sanctification, how there's progressive sanctification. There's also positional sanctification. Where when God looks down on us, he sees, yes, they are being progressively made more into the image of God. But our standing with God is positionally perfectly sanctified. He doesn't say you have to earn your salvation anymore. You, you have it. And you're going to be made new in Christ. Done. You're positionally with, seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. You are in Christ. You're positionally with him next to the Father. Now there's a progressive work that continues to go on, this side of glory. But Paul says you were sanctified. And he also says you were justified. You were declared righteous by God. And here's what I want us to see about those three things right there. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Is that all three of them, all three, are in the past tense. They are all things that were done. Remember, the, the Corinthian church has a lot of issues. Paul says some nice things on the front end, and then for the rest of the book, he pretty much just takes them behind the woodshed and just tells them all the things that they're doing wrong. But he's telling them here, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. This is past tense. This is where we would differ with our friends who are, are Roman Catholic. Is that we say we no longer need to secure our salvation. We no longer need to work toward it. Because we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. Past tense. We continue to grow in, our, in the image of Christ one degree of glory at a time continue to fight sin, but all of that is because we have been washed, sanctified, and justified. However, as we see in the next pa passage there, this is all only a reality for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Those things, those past tense things that have taken place are only for those who have called on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation from their sin. And it's being done through the Spirit. But you only receive the Spirit if you've called on the name of Christ. So Paul, the point that he's trying to get at here is that you used to be unrighteous. You used to be all those things. There's no ground for boasting for you. But you are now in Christ. So you are no longer identified as unrighteous, but now you're identified as righteous. And so the internal disputes that you have as a body, they're going to be there. They're just going to be there. He says, don't take them to the unrighteous. That's who you used to be. You're not them anymore. You are now righteous. You're declared righteous in Christ. He says, you can handle it. You have the Spirit of God. You have the people of God. And you have the Word of God. We are new creatures in Christ, and therefore... We, Christians, those who are followers of Jesus this morning, you are equipped to solve internal disputes differently than the world. And so that means we need, we need to engage in the hard and sometimes awkward work of reconciling with one another, of having conversations that we might not want to have. But it reflects the good news of the gospel. It reflects the gospel that has changed us because if the gospel is sufficient to reconcile us back to God, 
then certainly it's sufficient to reconcile us to one another. When there's internal trivial disputes, we can, we can handle them because the gospel is a reflection of the great dispute that we had with God. That we were sinful, we were marked with sin, and we were separated from him. But him in his grace, him in his mercy, sent his son to live the life that we should have lived, to live a perfectly righteous life that we have not done. And he died the death that we deserved. He bore the guilty judgment that God had prepared for us. This is all done because of God's grace toward us. We can reconcile with one another because God has chosen to reconcile with us for all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the ministry of reconciliation that you have given us. Thank you for equipping us to be able to handle some of these internal disputes where we know that they're going to arise. Give us wisdom on what it looks like to handle them in a way that reflects the gospel. Lord, help us be willing to suffer wrong. Help us be willing to lay aside our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of magnifying Christ, for honoring the Father, for honoring the Spirit. Thank you for your word. Help us to recognize its sufficiency and help us to submit to it ourselves, especially as we consider some of these issues that may arise in the future. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.